Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview inspiring, fascinating women who are navigating aging with class and sass. I'm your host, Nicole Christina. Hey everyone, I am so grateful for all of the downloads, and I'd love a rating on iTunes and a comment. And please subscribe. It helps the show's rating so other people can find it and learn how to age well. And if you are loving the podcast, why not check out the companion online course, Zestful Aging, Simple and Sustainable Habits for Health and Longevity. You can access it through my website, NicoleChristina.com forward slash Zestful Aging. It's based on the Harvard Study of Adult Development, and I'm really proud of how it's turned out. Well, I've got my coffee in my hand and my trusty dog Sparky beside me, so let's begin. Today we're going to talk about an important yet uncomfortable subject, which is health care and the end-of-life decisions. These decisions are often done at the worst possible time when families are in crisis. And our two guests today are going to talk about the conversations we need to have with our family and think about for ourselves related to health care. We're also going to be discussing the types of documents necessary to reflect a patient's wishes. So with us today are Emily Lawson Hatch, who is an elder law trusts and attorney in Syracuse, New York, and she has been named a New York super lawyer's rising star, and Barbara Caranti, who is a clinical associate professor of nursing at LeMoyne College, and she's a certified advanced care planning facilitator. She's authored and co-authored numerous books on related topics and has won awards. Hi, Barbara. Hi, how are you? Oh, we're all we're in the doing, same place now. We are. We're doing introductions. I was just finishing your introduction. Oh, that okay, great. Co-authored books on nursing topics and won awards for her contributions to the field. Thank you both for being with me today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you. So I'm going to just put this out, and I know you two have presented together, and um, but let me just put this out and, and ask both of you, if you could talk a little bit about what a deliberate planning process looks like versus waiting until a loved one is ill. Um, sure. Well, I can certainly start. Um, deliberate planning is something that when it's included in just general good health care, gives individuals time to make decisions um, using a lot of information that they can gather as opposed to waiting till someone is ill, you're doing it under the pressure of not wanting someone to suffer, but also wanting to know or wanting to act with doing what they would want. And sometimes that information is difficult to gather when someone is ill. Oh, I see. So would you end up maybe trying to guess what they would want? Um, I, I don't think we would do that. What, what as, as an individual, as a family member, yes, you might be doing a guessing game of what they would want. Um, but 
where we really have to be careful and I'll defer to Emily when it comes to the legalities of putting plans in place for someone at the last minute when we don't know for a fact what they would want. Yeah, absolutely. I would imagine, uh, I want to give you time, Emily, but I I imagine that it puts a lot of strain also on the the medical staff not knowing quite what Um, to do. it, It absolutely does. You know, we are, we're bound by our law, by laws, and we're bound by insurance companies, and we're bound by our ethics and values of our profession to do things in a certain way unless the individual has said no. And many times we're prolonging life um, that family members are not comfortable with that that situation, but we don't know what the individual wants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is Emily. I think that coming up with a deliberate planning process looks like someone taking the initiative either because they um, maybe they're they have they were a healthcare proxy for a friend or a neighbor or a family member and they said oh wow if I get to this point and I need a healthcare proxy who is that going to be for me and what do I want that to look like and what advice do I have for them I always give the example of if you are if you get a call from a hospital and the the physician or the nurse says, you know, you we're calling you because there's been an emergency and you are healthcare, you've been named as healthcare proxy for this patient that we have. And what if you don't know the patient very well? Maybe it's a, an old friend or maybe it isn't even a family member and you've never had those discussions about what they would want if they were if they were had an emergency situation and you're going in blind and how hard mm-hmm. that is. And then think if you have documentation that does provide you with a roadmap of what they want. And, you know, we don't have a crystal ball to see what, you know, what the end of life is going to look like for any of us, but we can certainly do the best we can uh, to tell someone what our values are and what would be important to us and what kinds of decisions we would want them to make for us and what we would want the answers to be if they were asked, you know, does, do you want to be on life support? Do you want uh, extraordinary measures taken to keep you alive? Uh, And I think that deliberately planning is saying, I'm going to reach out either to do documents on my own or reach out to a professional. I always like to make it clear that someone doesn't need an attorney to prepare healthcare documents. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they find that attorneys are valuable, but that should not stand in the way of anyone getting these documents done. You can find a New York healthcare proxy form on the internet. You can write your own living will. It's more important to get the documents done and get them into the hands of the people that can use them. And, you know, that makes so much sense. It also sounds like uh, people would have to be thinking, you know, of uh, sort of long term and uh, about things that nobody wants to think about. And I'm wondering how we can get over our natural resistance to having these conversations with our family. Well, I'm going to take it on myself as a healthcare provider that we often don't guide people to do this as part of um, a total preventative healthcare plan. It's something that we're uncomfortable with. And I don't think we take the initiative enough with our patients to say this is something that we're here to help you with and maybe we can um, bring family members in. 
Um, there's a lot of stress on the healthcare system right now, and I think that we sort of view that as something that, if the person is otherwise healthy, is not a real um, urgent situation. But one of the things that we tell students here on my campus, and it's done on campuses all over the country, is that particular age group, 18 to 24, the leading cause of death is trauma, which means it's not anticipated. Mm-hmm. And they should they should have an ability as as young adults to express their values, um, but it's often not thought about. And it's you know that's something that my grandparents do, and it's not important to me. But they are the ones that are um, statistically more likely to be in situations of near death experiences from unexpected means. Mm-hmm. You know, I just uh, wonder also if it's different in different cultures. Are you aware of sort of the ease of talking about impending death um, in different cultures? Do you know about the nursing culture or the, you know, the legal culture in, in other places where this is easier and more comfortable? There's definitely cultural influence, both from a um, religious Um, country of origin, but also, you know, again, the cultures within our own society of people, people like me, a nurse who's been exposed to a lot of end of life, I have particular views that are based on what I've witnessed and people I've worked with. But there Mm -hmm. is cultural influence from Native American to any culture that we would take care of, of how they view and value life. Mm-hmm. And maybe what they also think about, you know, what happens after we die. Absolutely. Uh, I think that you're going to find, you know, I'm glad Barb mentioned uh, religion, but religion, anyone, uh, depending on what people think is going to happen and where, where they are in terms of their spirituality makes a big difference on what decisions they're going to make and in terms of what their fear of death might be because what stands in the way of a lot of folks getting their documents in order is that they don't want to face their own mortality Mm -hmm. and they think that addressing these issues and talking about it is going to hasten their mortality which you know we know isn't logical but it still means they have to face it and they have to think about it when I have people come to me, you know, they come to the lawyer's office and a lot of times you're working with a couple, you know, and, and one of the partners will say, you know, maybe it's the wife and they'll say, oh, I've been meaning to do this forever. I just haven't been able to get my husband to come in with me. And now he's Mm. here and, you know, he's sitting there and maybe he doesn't really want to be there. But as soon as we start talking and I always frame it as though, you know, the, when someone does their documents and gets their healthcare proxy and along with their other estate documents in order, it's really a gift to other people. Mm. It's not even so much for yourself. It's a gift for other people. So they don't have to guess at what your decisions would be. And when, when they look at it that way and they say, oh, right, I'm not just doing something for myself. This isn't all about me. It is, you know, to help my kids. So it's not going to be so hard for them. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that that, that helps. And also using humor in these discussions is so helpful because you can't take it so seriously. Life is uh, too short. And if you, you know, when you're looking at these documents and thinking about the end of your life, if you don't laugh about it, you will cry about it. And, and it's okay to, um, it's okay to, to lighten up a little bit at, during the process to just get through it. Yeah. I, I th- I th- go ahead, Barbara. I think there's also a perception 
that if we're having a conversation with someone, particularly healthcare providers, that we know something they don't know, mm-hmm. or that um, anytime we would ask someone to fill out a, a legally binding document, that um, we're basically saying that we're not going to take care of them or that we wouldn't resuscitate them. It is just as valid in a healthcare plan to say that I want full resuscitation under any circumstance. And that still takes burden off of family and providers. Um, so it's really not a matter of withdrawing care. It's a matter of knowing appropriate care. I can just imagine trying to be a provider and and not having the, this guy, these guidelines and having family members not agree on what should happen. I mean, it makes it, it would make a stressful situation 10 times more upsetting. It always does. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we're in healthcare, we're very regulated. And an, an issue such as CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, which really has only been around for about probably 60 years, mm-hmm. um, we are we're legally bound to perform CPR on individuals unless they have said they don't want it. Um, in many cases, people don't really know what CPR looks like in reality, and they think that you know maybe what I saw on TV and maybe that's not so bad. Um, but the success rate of CPR is not a hundred percent. As a matter of fact, it's about between twenty and twenty-five percent, and it, it can be a very um, disturbing situation for for people to observe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, well, I didn't really understand that. And I don't really think my parent or my sibling or my spouse would have wanted that, but I didn't have any way to know. Right. Has there been any legislation or initiatives, do you know, about this, Emily, where, you know, people have discussed, look, this has to happen. You know, when you file your taxes, you also have to include uh, some kind of, you know. But it's a requirement. Yeah. What's what's happened with that? A very good question. There is no legislation that requires someone to have a healthcare proxy or have a living will. However, anytime someone is admitted to a hospital, the hospital wants them to have a healthcare proxy. And usually mm-hmm. people don't refuse that. And the hospital will say, and I, I know in my experience with clients, they the hospitals do a pretty good job of saying, you know, um, you might not have a bosom buddy that you can appoint, but you need to name somebody. And usually folks usually, and I say it's not all the time, but usually they can name someone. Um, but then they don't take that healthcare proxy with them. You know, that healthcare proxy is in, you know, it's usually electronic. The person is giving a name and phone number of somebody that they know to be their healthcare proxy. They use their finger to sign on a pad at the hospital to say that mm-hmm. this is who they're naming. But then, you know, they go through the rest of the life and they've forgotten who they've named. Maybe they're never going to go to that hospital again. Um, mm-hmm. But it's important for them to independently choose to have these documents. Also, if someone's admitted to a a nursing home or some sort of facility, they generally make sure that person has a healthcare proxy as well. But again, it's only for purposes of them being there. It's not a document that then they can take with them or keep in their car with them if they're in an accident. Mm-hmm. I see. So um, can we talk a little bit about sort of some practical things that uh, we can offer our listeners in terms of, okay, how do we talk about this with our family? Some, I know some families talk about uncomfortable things easier than others. Um, but 
certainly there's a barrier here. You know, there's resistance here. Do you have any sort of practical tools you can share with people wanting to do this, but knowing it will not go over well? Um, You know, I think that having these conversations that when you're talking to uh, a patient or in Emily's case, a client, that you acknowledge that this is an uncomfortable conversation, but that if it is done on a regular basis, it will become part of their healthcare routine. So, you know, I encourage people to do this when family is together. And that's the way you, you can assess who, who's the best person in my family to be my proxy. And if the answer is no one, then we know we have to move on to a friend or, uh, you know, a more distant relative. Um, but treating it as though, you know, I went to the doctors and the doctor put me on this medication, just like it's something that we do as part of our routine health care. The other advantage to that is, and I, you know, I think Emily would absolutely agree, is that you don't write a health care proxy at 25 when you get married and then not revisit it again until you're 75. You really have mm-hmm. to look at these things regularly to say, do I feel the same way now that I have children or grandchildren? Has anything changed? And mm-hmm. if I have a chronic illness, how do I want to adapt that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like, Barb, what you said about this should be routine. This is just part of being, uh, it's part of being an adult. It's part of being a grown up is having these documents in order. I will, I will have yeah, younger folks come in. So maybe somebody's in their 40s or 50s and they say, you know, I know that uh, if, you know, my mom or dad are sick and I know that, you know, decisions are going to have to be made at some time, but they refuse to talk to me about it. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I'll say, well, why don't you, you know, if you take the, the twist and say, well, I'm doing my own planning, mom, you know, I'm doing my own planning. I want to let you know what I've decided and mm-hmm. take it from that point of view. Instead of saying, you know, you need to do this, say, look, I'm doing this. I wonder what your thoughts are on it. If you were in this position, what you'd want to do. But, you know, instead of, you know, placing the blame on someone else for not getting it done, you know, because we're often <laughs> the worst at getting it done ourselves sometimes. And so if you do it and then you can incorporate it that way. Um also, you know, saying it's a gift, reflecting back on yourself to get it done. And then when sometimes it's the parent that says, I want to talk to my kids about this, but they won't talk to me about it, about my own stuff. I'm getting a healthcare proxy done, but and I'm telling them that these are my end of life wishes, but they just don't want to hear it. And of course, that's going to be true with a lot of, with a lot of family members or people we love because we again die but then we also have to think if they're not willing to have this conversation with me are they really the right person to be my healthcare agent if they can't even have the conversation now what is it going to be like when it's a crisis are they going to be able to emotionally make you know well-informed decisions on my behalf and it's it you know it's something to think about Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, Am I re- Go ahead, Barbara. It's also important, I think, um, and I do, I do stress this whenever I talk to individuals or to groups, that people who are helping you with your healthcare proxy have expertise, if you, if you choose to have someone help you. But we don't have global expertise. If you feel like you need spiritual advice, absolutely, you should get spiritual advice. If you feel like you need legal advice, you should also get legal advice. And part of people's hesitancy in this, although it sounds flippant, it really it really is a, the reality is that um, we don't accept that 
our lives are terminal. Mm -hmm. um, and to talk about it makes us uncomfortable because we don't 100% believe that someone is not going to be with us until they're mm -hmm. gone. So it, it, it brings up issues of religion, spirituality, you know, how you're, you're comfortable with discussing this. Mm -hmm. Bring in advisors. I, it's always, always appropriate to do that. Advisors. I, am I remembering correctly that the two of you were thinking that Thanksgiving might be a good time? <laughs> oh, I, I use that. Um, <laughs> only, only because it is a time when people tend to gather. Mm -hmm. um, and many families were so spread out that it, it requires uh, an actual event to bring us all back together. So when people say, like, what, you know, when am I supposed to do this? I say, you know, are, are your children coming home for Thanksgiving? <laughs> you know, maybe that's a time when you can take a few minutes to do this. Somewhere make between it a... the turkey and the pie. <laughs> right. Correct. I'm curious, too, uh, about both of you and what it's been like for you to do this kind of work, this end-of-life work. How has it been for you, and how might it, uh, you know, be affecting your life? That's a really good question. I would say as an attorney, uh, you know, a large part of my practice is elder law. And with that, you run into people who don't have people. They might not have family members. They might not have folks they can depend on for a variety of reasons. And sometimes as an elder law attorney, you become their person. And there have been moments, uh, it's, it's pretty few and far between, but where we, ha you know, like me personally as an attorney will act as someone's healthcare proxy or power of attorney. And when that happens, it's very interesting to be put in those types of positions of mm -hmm. sitting with someone as they're making medical decisions. Sometimes you're helping um, work with the physicians to have them better interpret what they're saying so that your client can really understand their choices. You're helping advocate for their choices so that, you know, if someone's trying to encourage them one way or another, you're, you know, it's, you really make it clear that it is their decision. And then if, you know, I've been with clients as they have died and making sure their wishes are fulfilled, you really, it takes on, you take on a completely different role in that position. And I would say it's very rewarding because if you're able to uh, honor somebody in that way, I think it, I think it's very worthwhile and it, it helps me better inform my clients and their families as to the situations they might be in, because I've had the opportunity to be in them myself. I, I would absolutely agree with Emily. I think it is a very rewarding area in a kind of an underexplored area of healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, that you know, death is not treated by um, by our culture in the United States as being as celebratory as it is in other cultures. And I, I think it's important to discuss with people about, you know, how, how do you envision this happening and how, how would you like this to occur? And everyone, you know, has different ways of saying it, but it's a small piece of control that we can give, pe give to people and to help them exit this world. And I, I love this kind of work because it allows me to talk with people and get to know them on a 
very intimate level, but a different type of intimacy than you do in other types of healthcare I've been engaged mm -hmm. in. Do you find that, you know, focusing a lot of your thought on, on end of life care um, helps you stay more present and helps you stay more, you know, aware of this moment, almost in a, in a kind of a, a gratitude mindset? Is that, is that an effect of being acutely aware that we're going to die and um, that um, being I, part of your world. I've never, I've never been asked that in quite that way, but I think it's, um, it's absolutely true. Um, I think since I've been doing this work and I have, obviously I've served as a healthcare proxy for loved ones in my life and been present when they, when they passed away, that this kind of work is very important to me because I value that experience. Being with someone when they pass on um, is a privilege. It, it's a total privilege to be there and watch someone take their last breath. Mm -hmm. And I, I choose to view it that way in spite of there is much sadness and a lot of mourning that has to happen. But that one moment, you make a difference for someone. And every time I hear Emily talk about her work, I'm like, wow, I really admire this because this has been part of my life since I was 18, but I never pictured an attorney doing this. And I think it's great. I, I think that it, it really is totally a privilege to be with someone as they pass away. Mm -hmm. I did you Especially imagine? if it's being done the right way. Yeah. The right way. Emily, did, did you imagine yourself in law school also being part of someone's a dying process? I absolutely did not. And I can tell you that I, 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 the area of law I'm in, so even though I, you know, I do estate planning, I do, you know, high level tax work, but this elder law component, I would say that many attorneys would be very uncomfortable with this, right? So just because we're all, I mean, we're all human. Um, <laughs> but this is uh, this area of law, which is sort of like a concierge attorney position, when you're acting as someone's healthcare proxy or getting that involved in their lives, is something I did not imagine myself doing. I didn't even know it existed. I didn't even know it was an option until people started asking me to do it. And I would say that I get referrals from the hospitals to do this work. They'll say somebody, there's somebody here and they need someone beyond a social worker. They also have legal issues. Can you help? I get referrals from adult protective services. And then from clients, often clients, my, you know, my people without people that are single that don't have any one and, and they want someone. And it, it may sound, I think people that haven't experienced it may think it sounds sort of clinical to kind of hire a professional to help them with that. But it doesn't feel like that when a client is going through it. I can, I, I think that, I think that it's a, a beautiful thing and we take it very seriously. I, I, I've had clients tell me that it's like hiring a professional granddaughter to help <laughs> them. Um, and it really is. We take it very seriously and, and it's all about advocating for this person. And we get mm -hmm. to, you know, we set our aside our own values and we, we use the values of our client. And I, you know, going back to your question about how it affects our, I think, Barb and I's perspective, I can say for myself, it does change my perspective and I feel very fortunate to be able to do this because if I'm having a bad day, I can really in the moment very quickly say, but at least I, at least my kids are okay. At least my family's mm -hmm. okay. At least, you know, all these other things are so good. And I would say that 
you know, maybe my perspective makes me save a little less money because I'm spending it on now. I'm spending it on experiences and doing things now because mm-hmm. I do think of end of life on a daily basis, not in a morbid way, uh, but right. as, you know, is it really as important for me to save, you know, and I say money, but I mean, it's, it's important to be responsible with your money, but is a, you know, <laughs> it, it's important to also live now. It's important to live now, go on mm-hmm. trips, do the things you want to do now, because, mm-hmm. you know, there's, if, if you can do it now, there's no sense in waiting. Um, you know, take days off of work to enjoy your life in retirement. Find things that are going to enrich your life and enrich the lives of others. You don't, it, it's easy to procrastinate and it's okay. And I give people permission to procrastinate, but do, do what makes you happy. Life is too mm-hmm. short not to. I think what both of you are saying is that what is, uh, a professional uh, aspect of your job is also profoundly uh, enriching Absolutely. this experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think we're both, um, we're both in professions where there is no hard line between our personal life and our professional life. I think that's mm-hmm. a fair statement for me. Yes. Um, but also, you know, another benefit of this work, and I think Emily alluded to it, is that care and attention to our elder population is not there's not enough of it. Um, so focusing, although end of life doesn't just focus on the, the older adult, but it does give me an opportunity to look at the older client and see socially there's needs for people out there in this age group that mm-hmm. we're not meeting. And, you know, even if that's my small contribution to it, I'm, I'm happy to do it. And um, I think our listeners would also really benefit from hearing some of the resources. And, you know, we're, we have listeners all over the world. So um, I know that you both practice in New York State. Are there any websites or any books or any other resources that you'd like to share that aren't specific to New York? Yeah, the document. So in terms of, you know, there's two documents people really need that, I mean, everyone over 18 needs, and those are, for, for making healthcare decisions, those are a healthcare proxy where you're appointing someone to act as your agent, and those can be found in any state, and those mm-hmm. are legally binding forms in every single state. So once you've appointed someone as your healthcare proxy, you can always revoke it, but they are once they've accepted the duty and they're actually acting as your healthcare proxy or agent, it, they have a fiduciary responsibility to act in your best interest. So that's legally binding. And the second part of it is having a living will, which is giving advice to your healthcare proxy about what you want your end of life decisions to be. And when you're doing that, the document that our office prefers is a five wishes document. And that is a national document. Okay. I mean, it's, a, I mean, it can be used anywhere in the, the world. And it, it does reference in the document that it's used and, you know, living wills are valid in these many states. But what it is, is it's not legally binding in, in any state. What it is, is evidence of what you would want. And that evidence mm-hmm. is really important. I refer back to the Terry Schiavo case where, you know, there's this woman and she was in a vegetative state and her husband said she wouldn't want to be left alive like this, but her parents disagreed and they thought that she would want to be kept alive as long as possible. And the judges, when it went to court, just kept saying, if only there was evidence of what she wanted, Mm -hmm. if only she had a living will. And so even though it wouldn't have been legally binding, it would have been evidence of what she wanted, which would have helped make a decision in a much quicker manner. And I think everyone needs to have those, but a living will, it doesn't have to be 
in any certain form. It doesn't have to be notarized. It can be a letter that you have written to someone. You can send someone an email and say what your end of life wishes are, but uh-huh. send something. Send, send something. something. And um, where where could our listeners find the the five wishes document? Is that five a, wishes, yeah, yeah, it can be downloaded. You can either ask them to be mailed to you or mm-hmm. you can have them downloaded. And there's a wish that's, um, the website is agingwithdignity.org. Okay, agingwithdignity.org. And they have it for adults. They also have pediatric five wishes documents, which I have had a few people use. Um, those circumstances are obviously different, but it allows a young person to, if they're in a terminal state, to be able to talk about those hard issues. Mm-hmm. These are such important um, topics, and I'm so glad that I could uh, talk to both of you. Do either of you have anything um, you'd like to add before we wrap up our conversation? Anything we haven't covered or anything you'd like to emphasize? Um, I just, since your um, your podcasts are heard so broadly, I would just like to stress that I think it's important that people understand that their primary care provider is a good place to start, not only for beginning this conversation, but also if someone does have a chronic illness or who is suffering with a, a change in health and that's their that's what's prompting them to do this, they, they need to develop some questions for their provider to help them to make the decisions about prognosis and what treatment options are available and that that will help them I think it's important to um, to add that to our comments okay yeah I I would say um, not just to folks that need to do their documents but also to healthcare providers um, to not be afraid to talk to people about their prognosis and be very frank about it I, I mean I've been at in hospital and nursing home situations where the physician is asking me, you know, do they know they're dying? And I said, didn't you tell them? <laughs> you know, um, you, you know, and I, sometimes I'm breaking, you know, not breaking the news, but sharing that news. But really, um, physicians, they do mostly a beautiful job, but just need to, you know, protect pretend this person doesn't know anything. They don't know the medical stuff, but be very clear about what their prognosis is because information is power. And the sooner somebody knows what's going on, the sooner they can make informed decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like that's the that's the basic message here is, um, is information is power. And it's really important to have some guidelines for for the people you love and who are going to have to make hard decisions. Yeah, well, I so appreciate your um, giving us this this background and this information. I think it's really going to be helpful and hopefully nudge some people to have these tough Thanksgiving discussions. <laughs> um, and I really like the, you know, some of your suggestions. So appreciate having you on. And are there any other, um, any other websites or any other contact uh, uh, information that you would like to be up on the notes or have people find out about? Emily, is there a place that you'd like people to contact you if they have more questions? Yeah, they can. Anyone can find me online by just Googling me if they have any further mm-hmm. questions. Either they want resources or information. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's Emily Lawson Hatch, and I'd okay. be I'd be happy to answer any questions people have. And I can be reached via the email that you have for me. 
Okay, so I'll put those both up. Thank you so much, ladies. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure pleasure and an education oh, as our, well. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. Please subscribe, comment, and rate me on iTunes. I love those five stars. Like and share. Those actions help other people find the show. And I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com and tell me what you'd like to hear more about. Want more zest? Head over to NicoleChristina.com forward slash zestful aging, no spaces, where you can find my companion online course, Zestful Aging, Simple and Sustainable Habits for Health and Longevity. See you next time for another episode of Zestful Aging.